Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada this morning. Longtime listeners of our broadcast know that each and every week I uh, invite a guest to be part of a conversation concerning the weekly Torah portion, known in Hebrew as the parashah. The Torah is divided into um, 54 Torah portions um, to accommodate the unique intercalation of the sun and moon that serves as the basis for the Hebrew calendar. We begin our reading with the first parashah Bereshit, the first portion, the first chapter of the book of Genesis, and continue with a weekly cycle um, interrupted occasionally for major Jewish holidays until we complete the book of Deuteronomy. However, this morning, my guest and I want to speak with you about a holiday which has uh, taken place this past week during the Jewish world. It's known as the holiday of Purim. It's a very unusual holiday in the Jewish calendar, um, inasmuch as there's no biblical reference to it. Um, though the story um, encapsulated in the Migilat Esther, the scroll of Esther, is part of the Hebrew canon. With me this morning to discuss the book of Esther and the holiday of Purim is Rabbi Eric Wisnia, who was the um, founding rabbi and is now the rabbi emeritus of congregation Beth Chaim, in Princeton Junction, New Jersey. He served as a senior rabbi of that congregation for 42 years. Um, in that capacity, he was elected to president of the New Jersey Association of Reform Rabbis. He was intimately involved in the establishment of the Muslim Center of Greater Princeton and is known throughout uh, the Jewish world for his wisdom and his wit which makes him the perfect commentator for the holiday of Purim. So welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, Rabbi Eric Wisnia. Thank you, Rabbi Garten. So I thought for our listeners we should begin with an overview of the story of Purim before we start to probe the uh, intricacies of this story. So why don't you help us by telling us where the story is set who are the main characters, and how do they interact with each other? Thank you. Uh, Purim is a fascinating holiday, as you mentioned, because it's um, a lot of fun. It's rather raucous, but it does have a serious point. Um, two points, in fact, that I think we'll get into in a while. Um, the setting is the Persian Empire around the year 400 BCE, the king of, uh, in, it's the story of the Book of Esther. The story of the Book of Esther uh, has two heroes, one a heroine, the queen, Esther herself, and the other, her cousin or uncle, it's not clear in Hebrew the word, it can be the same, um, whose name is Mordechai. Now, Esther and Mordechai are Persian names, indicating that the Jews were highly assimilated in the Persian Empire. We were exiled from Israel in the year 586 BCE by the Babylonian army under Nebuchadnezzar. Around 50 years later, 
the Babylonian Empire morphed into the Persian Empire. And the Persians, unlike the Babylonians, treated us very nicely. They allowed the Jews to assimilate. They lived throughout the Persian Empire as uh, relatively peaceful and equal lives. Thus, this sets up our story. The king of Persia, who in the Bible, uh, excuse me, in the, in the Bible is called Achashverosh, that is the uh, Persian name for the king Xerxes, Chishyarsha in Persian, Chashverosh in Hebrew. But the king is not Xerxes. That's why people thought that the story was not real, because it doesn't fit the life of King Xerxes, who even the Persians thought was kind of a boo-boo brain. Um, actually, the story revolves around the rule of King Artaxerxes II. And if you compare the story of Esther to the life of Artaxerxes II, you'll see it fits quite well. So the story is that Artaxerxes uh, needed a new queen. He had asked his old queen, Vashti, to uh, dance before him at his coronation dinner, uh, and the implication being that she should dance without any clothes on, and uh, she refused. So this is actually one of the earliest mentions of women's lit. The courtiers of uh, King Artaxerxes get very upset, and they say in, in the Bible that, you know, King, if you allow this to happen, that the queen can refuse you on anything, then women will get the idea they can stand up to their husbands and boss them around. So unless you come down on her pretty hard now, we men are going to have trouble ever after. Just for our listeners' clarification, I think that's not exactly the way the book of Esther phrases it, but that is the intent of the story at the very beginning, <laughs> well, that Vashti um, is needs to be removed from her position lest women in the kingdom um, believe that they can change uh, the patriarchal structure. <laughs> Unfortunately, in those days, uh, the king made quite sure that women had no rights. So he needed a new queen. Who does he get? He has a beauty contest. And uh, the beauty contest is won by a, it happens, a Jewish girl whose name is Hadassah, but who is so assimilated that she doesn't use her Jewish name, Hadassah. She calls herself by after the Persian goddess of fertility, Ishtar, and the way we Hebrews say that is Esther. And she calls herself Ishtar, and she wins the beauty contest, and she moves into the harem, and she becomes the chief wife of King Ahasuerus. But nobody knows that she's Jewish. And, and perhaps for our listeners, we should clarify that when Rabbi Wisner uses the word assimilates, that's what he is referring to, that Esther or the other characters in the story who are of Jewish birth but have no practice, public practice or public identification of their Jewish heritage. Yes. Um, unlike uh, many in North America, who have uh, more liberal religious practices or uh, modified religious practices or who proclaim their Jewishness in uh, secular ways. In our story, Esther, in the very beginning, is not identified 
um, to the king or to the public of Persia as Jewish. She purposely hides the fact. The, the Bible does not make any judgment about that. It just states the fact. She hides it. She calls herself uh, Ishtar, the goddess of fertility. She lives in the harem. She's the favorite queen of the king, who is the head of the Zoroastrian religion. She's doing nothing Jewish. That's the first half of the story. The second half of the story talks about her cousin, Mordechai. Now, Mordechai is also a Persian name. It comes from the Persian uh, god Marduk. But Mordechai is a, a very good Jew. He avows, he's, he, he proclaims himself a Jew. And in fact, even though his name is uh, Mordechai, uh, the Babylonian god, Persian god, he calls himself Mordechai the Jew. It would be kind of like um, calling yourself Rabbi Christopher. Uh, it's not a particularly Jewish name, but the rabbi kind of gives it away. Mordechai is a good Jew. He goes to work in the king's court at the same time, and um, he seems to succeed. He succeeds very well. He saves the king's life on one occasion, and the king rewards him. And um, Mordechai is moving up the hierarchy in the, the Persian Empire. He runs into conflict with another one of the king's men, whose name is Haman. Haman is not Jewish. He's a Zoroastrian. He's loyal to the king. Uh, but he's got a bit of an ego. And so he meets Mordechai, and uh, Mordechai asks, who are you? And he says, well, I'm the uh, very important advisor to the king, and therefore you should bow down to me. And Mordechai says, well, I'm a Jew, and we don't bow down to any man. Uh, we don't do that. We only bow to God. More, Haman has a fit, gets very angry, and begins to hate Mordechai with a passion, and carries it even further. He wants to go even further, he said. Now, the story makes it quite clear. He only knows one Jew, Mordechai. That's the only Jew he knows. But the Jews don't bow down. The Jews are no good. So Haman has a grudge, and he goes to the king. And he says, Your Majesty, there's a people in your empire. I know you treat everybody fairly, and you don't discriminate. But these Jews are no good. They don't follow your laws. They're bad. They're selfish. We've got to get rid of them. He knows one Jew. And he says, They're all no good. So. We got two stories going on here. We got Esther's assimilation and hiding that she's Jewish, and Mordechai, the Jew, who now is going to face the ire of Haman. Haman decides, I'm going to have all the Jews killed. And so he bamboozles the king, who gets drunk a lot. He uh, convinces the king, look, we can nationalize all their property. I'll pay you a lot of money, and let's kill all the Jews. And the king is drunk, and he says, eh, Haman, whatever you want to do is fine by me. The story is, is told in a very funny way, even though it's a serious story. Um, and in fact, when we read the, the Megillah of Esther in our uh, synagogues, every time they mention the name of Haman, everybody in the synagogue is supposed to scream and yell and blot out his name so you can't even hear it. So when rabbis read the book of Esther, it's crazy. He's the... Um villain of the story and the king is a um, shakespearean fool he's the fall guy 
Right. <laughs> he really is portrayed, um, even though we should acknowledge to the readers that the Persian Empire in its um, largesse allowed Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple because, as you suggested, they really were only interested in collecting taxes <laughs> and not interested in um, uh, conquering people in a, to uh, integrate into their community uh, the way the Babylonians were. Right. The Babylonians, when they conquered Israel in 586 BCE, destroyed our capital, Jerusalem. And they carried off the entire population of Jerusalem, about 40 or 50,000 people, and plunked them down in the middle of Babylon. They totally transported the population so that the country uh, was just failing. Right. And, and for some of the listeners, they will know um, the Book of Lamentations. Um, which seems to be a, an emotional response to exile. And you will probably know the psalm that begins by the waters of Babylon. There I sat and wept. Right. Number 137. Right. Um, so the Persians in history are very different, but we have this story of a foolish Persian king, a mad um, villain who works for the king, we have Esther, the hidden Jew, and Mordechai, um, who were not told how he practices Jew, but since the text tells us his name, Mordechai, comma, the Jew, um, we'll assume that he's a publicly identified Jew. Um, Haman gets the king to sign a document proclaiming that all Jews will be destroyed and their property uh, confiscated and brought to the treasury of the king of which Haman might want uh, a cut in the deal. Um, and then how does the story end? Haman decides to have all the Jews in the Persian Empire executed on Adar 14th, which is the day of we celebrate Purim. And Mordechai, the Jew, <laughs> says, well, that's me and everybody else. And he gets very sad and... Uh, it was an edict. He got the king to agree to it, so you can't very well say, hey, king, you're a fool. So he doesn't know what to do. He goes to his cousin Esther, who is safely ensconced in the uh, harem of the palace, and he sends word to her. He says, uh, listen, Tootsie, um, I know you're a Jew. You think you're going to escape? And she sends back and says, uh-huh, nobody knows I'm a Jew. So I can get away with this, man. I don't have to do anything. I'll ride out the problem. Mordecai says something that is fascinating. He says to her two things. Number one, we Jews are survivors, and we're going to make it with or without you, dear. The question is, why did God give you brains, beauty, good looks, and opportunity to become the queen? Why did God set up your life so that you live such a good life? Maybe God gave you your position, your power, your wealth, and everything else just so you would be in a position to do good when it came down to it. Maybe God has put you where you are just so you could help us in our hour of need. And if you don't do it, 
and use the blessings that God has given you to do good, just maybe God will take them away from you. In the challenge that Mordechai throws down uh, at Esther's feet, does he mention the name of God? Uh, the name of God is is not used in the entire book. So, so he doesn't really mention God by name. But he says, why is it that you're blessed? Why do you have all this power? Right. Why are you so good looking? Why are you there? No, of course, we Jews read it as saying God, but it's fascinating how how the book tries to be very um, ecumenical and not talk about God so much. Um, you know, everybody can draw their implication. Why is your life blessed? God has given it to me or I just lucked out. Well, whatever the reason is, you did luck out. And what he, what Mordecai says to her is, if you don't use your blessings and your position and your power for good, just maybe you'll lose it. Maybe that's the reason you have it. And this assimilated girl who did nothing Jewish before, who has not been a paragon of virtue or anything that women's lib could be proud of, says to herself and to Mordechai, oh my, you're right. I am going to use my position to do something. I am going to take a chance and risk it and do something good for my people. And she does. And that makes her a great hero. She could have tried to hide, but she doesn't. She says, leave it to me. I'm going to take care of it. And let me tell you, this girl is a smart cookie. She goes to work and she puts on her fanciest dress and her fanciest perfume and she dolls herself up. And she goes to the king and she says, oh, kingy poo. And he says, ah, oh, my lovely wife, Esther, how are you, dear? She says, I'm fine, but I need something from you. And he says, oh, okay, like everybody else. Huh? You want money? You want jewels? What do you want? She says, well, do you love me? And he says, of course I love you. No, no, do you really love me? Of course, Esther, I really, really love you. What do you want? I want you to come to a party I'm going to make tomorrow night for you. Well, that's the king's language. A party? Whoa. The king says, sounds good. Okay. And then the Bible describes the party, and Esther knew how to throw a party. I mean, you may have been to a wedding or a bar mitzvah bash. Nothing compared to this party that she throws. Fancy, food out the wazoo, everything is top-notch. As we move along in the story, um, your facetiousness is somewhat reflective of the exaggerated nature of the text. And our listeners can probably guess that the denouement is that the Jews survive. <laughs> Do you want to help our listeners understand, because we're here talking, um, <laughs> do you want to help our listeners understand why the text is written in such an exaggerated way? I mean, you're right. Um, you know, the party description goes overboard and in comparison to many biblical stories, which are quite brief. I mean, the book of the story of creation is uh, less than 100 verses. Here we have nine chapters. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that at this point in our history, um, we Jews had uh, 
um, when the, the story is written down, um, we Jews were, the Persian Empire was probably gone and had been conquered by the Greeks. And the Greeks were telling stories about the Persian kings in much the same way, very fancy, very ornate, very descriptive. And for the Jews, the holiday of Purim that was established after um, seeks to uh, be fun, seeks to involve children, but seeks to make the point of two things. One is that Esther, who was assimilated, stood up. And no matter how assimilated or bad or whatever you did in your past, the question is, what are you going to do today? How are you going to act now? And Esther becomes a hero because now she stands up and she she works out with Mordecai that the first party is fantastic. What does she do? She suckers the king and Haman in by saying, I'm going to make another party tomorrow night even better. So he comes to the second night. And then when he says to her, Esther, I love you. What can I do for you? She turns to him and says, don't kill me. And the king looks horrified. And Haman says, what? Who would dare harm you? And the king says, who would touch my favorite queen? And she points at Esther and Haman and says, that evil guy is going to kill my people. And Haman says, oh, my God, she's Jewish. The king is drunk, and he walks out on the balcony, and uh, Haman falls at her feet, and now the next scene, Woody Allen's going to do it in the movie. It'll be really good. She rips her dress, jumps on Haman, and while he's saying, what, 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 she screams, rape, rape, he's forcing me, king, save me. Well, the king comes back in. Mordechai had set guards outside the door for just this moment. The guards rush in and say, your majesty, he's attacking the queen. While Haman's lying on the floor saying, what? What? No, no, I'm not doing anything. No. And the, the guards say, there's the gallows that we're going to hang Mordechai on. Let's hang Haman. And Haman is hung. Esther saves the Jews. It's funny, crazy, but she saves the Jews. And that, I think, is very important. But we also can't forget the sin of Haman. Haman knew one Jew and said they're all like that. One Jew wouldn't bow down to him, and he says they, they don't follow any of the king's laws. He makes up lies. He doesn't tell the truth. He allows his bigotry to control him, and he's a pretty nasty guy. So those are the two issues that I think we Jews learn from Purim. So it's a fanciful story, but beneath the um, the fantasy and the humor are these important lessons about assimilation and the response to anti-Semitism, two major issues in the Jewish community today. Um, in addition, there's the tension mm -hmm. that the story sets up between Mordechai, who's the publicly identified Jew, um, and his cousin um, Esther, or his um, um, liege, as they might say in earlier literature, um, that um, she is wanting not to be identified so easily as uh, a Jew, a member of the Jewish people. Um, in all your years 
of teaching this story b- besides having fun with it? What's the primary lesson that you've tried to communicate to um, your congregation and to the surrounding community about this book? I always bring up this story when we talk about anti-Semitism and discrimination to point out the fact that we Jews know what that feels like. We had it done to us, and we almost got wiped out. Thank God Esther and Mordechai saved us. So we know the pain of discrimination. That's true. But I think the story of Esther is a powerful story for the rest of us, Um, and that's why she's known as the heroine, and, and the book is Megillat Esther. It talks about her, that um, as assimilated as she was, as Persian as her lifestyle was, um, when it came down to it, she stood up with her people to do the right thing. And that's a powerful lesson to us. You know, no matter where we are, whether we're observant Jews like Mordecai is supposed to be, or non-observant Jews like Esther is supposed to be, or where we are in the spectrum, the fact is we're often put in a position where we can do the right thing, where we can stand up and stand for what's right. And she did. And that makes that woman a hero because she risked it all when she didn't have to and put her life on the line to do the right thing. I I mean, I suppose that's really um, an important part of her um, heroic act. She risked when she didn't have to. That um, potentially, while the story seems to suggest that she might have been identified and died with the rest of the Jews, there's no reality to that. She's in the um, right. The palace, who's going to say anything about the queen being Jewish? Nobody who valued their life. Um, and so she could have slid through. Right. She could. And I, and it, throughout Jewish history, there's this, um, ongoing dynamic of people, um, hating us for as illogical reasons as Haman's. Um, and for putting our uh, continued existence in danger. And uh, the question is, will people who um, are born Jewish and have Jewish roots and Jewish um, heritage and Jewish destiny want to stand up uh, and uh, make a statement that the survival of the Jews... John Locke said it well, all that is required for evil to succeed is for men and women of goodwill to do nothing. When Mordecai says to her, why is it that you're blessed? Do you deserve it more than other people? My father survived the Holocaust. He was in Auschwitz, and he was one of those few who survived. And the question he always asked is, well, why me? Was I better? Were they bad? Did they do something wrong? No, it was just dumb luck. So the question is, what are you going to do with the blessing God has given you? I think we're going to leave it at that beautiful statement. What are we going to do with the blessings that God gives you? For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I want to thank our guest this morning, Eric Wisnia. As I said at the outset, the perfect candidate to talk with us about the book of Esther, Megillat Esther. You can hear a broadcast of our show on CHRI 99.1 or on chri.ca website as a podcast or on iTunes, wherever you find your podcast. 
for Jewish faith and Jewish facts. Wishing you shalom and have a good day. Shalom.